Amen. Thanks, Nick. Well, hopefully, uh, I don't know about you, but summer in Michigan is the time in Michigan. So I really hope that you're enjoying your time in Michigan uh, because a month from now we'll be in our North Faces once more. I'm just kidding. I speak against that in Jesus' name. But seriously, we're having a really good time. Uh, as a family, for us, summer is fun because uh, London is just old enough. Like the majority of my summer thus far has been spent in the backyard in a kiddie pool. I don't, I don't know about your summer. That's been my vibe uh, lately, uh, hanging out and, and doing things as a family. But I'm excited that you're here because today we're kind of continuing the journey in what we just called soul work, caring for the most important part of you. And uh, today, one of the things we're talking about is, is really could be very, very powerful for you. But I want to make an argument to you today. I'm not a necessarily argumentative human being, but I want to make an argument to you today, a case really for something. And if you, on the other side of this message, if you embrace the argument I'm making or the case I want to state, I really believe that your marriage will be radically different, that your singleness, that your dating life will be radically different. Uh, if you embrace this argument, you embrace this case I'm trying to make to you today, the way you think about money and process decisions around your finances will be radically different. Uh, your parenting, whether you got little kids or kids out of the house, will radically shift if you embrace this argument in this case I'm making today. Even church, the way you approach a Sunday morning, like if you walk in here on a Sunday morning or you're watching online or you're driving listening to this, how you approach this thing that we're doing together will radically shift. And not only will this gathering shift for you, but your time alone with God, like your, your daily rhythms, your habits, the soul work that you do, the practices you have maybe adopted or adapted into your own lifestyle, they will radically shift if you embrace the argument, the case I want to make to you today. And here it is. Our life in private is the only life that matters. Now, my goal is for the 90% of you who just disagreed with me, <laughs> my goal is to win you back, okay? Like, that's my aim over the next 20 or so minutes is to get you back on my team because I deeply believe that this is true. And I believe that even though this makes no sense in terms of our cultural backgrounds, right? Because we, we are built to achieve and to produce and to be seen as valuable and productive by other people. An argument like that rubs against pretty much everything maybe you and certainly I grew up understanding, specifically when it comes to faith. I want to take you to the most profound teaching by Jesus on the kingdom of God in all of Scripture, and we call it the Sermon on the Mount. It's this couple chapters found in every gospel in different ways that Jesus is, is talking about the kind of people that God's kingdom people are. He's talking about the culture of what it means to be in the kingdom of God, this new heaven, this new earth that's breaking in. But he has something to say about our private lives. If you have a Bible or even a device, uh, this is your time. Matthew 6, verse 1. Uh, some of this will be on the screen for you. Here's what Jesus says. Listen to his words. Be careful. Uh, another phrase would be be cautious. Watch out. Be, be alert. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. Jesus says, be careful not to practice your right way of living, even your obedience to me, in front of other people to be viewed by them as spiritually successful. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Let me quick pause us there. 
Because what Jesus doesn't say is almost as important as what he does say in this sermon. What Jesus says is not that you will have minimal reward. It'll just be kind of half-hearted or, or not quite to the degree it could be. Literally, the words of Jesus in this passage are you will have no reward, no reward in heaven from your Father if you practice your righteousness just in front of others to be seen and appreciated by them. And then he goes on, verse 2. So when you give to the needy, and Jesus assumes kingdom people are generous, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. Some of you have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. And this is Jesus using your spiritual gift. He's literally saying, like, if you do practice it in front of other people, you've received your reward in full. Like, people's accolades, people's uh, appreciation of you and your incredible spiritual life, that's all you're going to get. That's, that's the extent of your reward. But he says, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be, listen to this word, in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And then he goes on. He talks about prayer. Jesus doesn't just assume that, that kingdom people, people who are doing the soul work, that they fast or that they give money away, but he also assumes they have a life of prayer, a life that intercedes on behalf of, of other people, a life that's bold and asks for things. Verse 5, he says, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen, again, by others. The emphasis here is on practicing this, this kind of faith in front of other people so they, they see you. He says, truly I tell you, they too have received their reward in full. And then he gives instructions around prayer. Listen to what he says. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret in your private world will reward you. The discipline Jesus is, is a, kind of speaking to in this passage and throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is solitude. And solitude may be a pretty, maybe you've heard that word, maybe you've used that, or immediately you think of like prison break, solitary confinement. I'm not sure where you, wherever your mind goes, solitude is this intentional space you create to meet with God. It, it's, a, it's an appointment with the Lord. It's a time you've set aside and it starts with silence. It can start with being still. It can start with being alone or in, in a retreat place. But it ends with, with really an experience, a presence of God coming into your life just as you are. So it's not just being quiet. Like that's kind of how I grew up. Solitude, I'd hear that word. I was like, okay, I got to get away. Got to be just shut my mouth for like 10 minutes and God will meet me in some way. And silence is a part of that. But one way to phrase this would be in silence, we come to God. Like we approach him in silence when it comes to this discipline. But in solitude, God comes to us. In silence, we come to God. We set aside space and time for him. But in solitude, he meets us. He steps into our world just as we are. Now, here's the thing. I don't make this argument from like an isolated case. Like Jesus, good enough example, or even my own life. Like you can scan the scriptures. You see biblical heroes, characters, leaders in the faith who practiced a rhythm of solitude, of practicing intentional time and space with the Lord. First, first one that comes to mind is Moses. 
right? Moses goes away, has this rhythm of solitude. You can read this in the Old Testament where he gets away, goes to his mountaintop to meet with God. He wants to hear God's voice as a leader. He wants to experience, he asks boldly, God, I want to see your glory. He wants a glimpse of who God is in that secret place. He has a rhythm of solitude. Out of that flow, 10 commandments, out of that flow, kind of these revelations that God gives Moses. Second person that comes to mind is Elijah. Probably the most famous prophet, especially if you're a Jew, Elijah's like your hero. I mean, he he is the guy that that defeated the, the enemies of God. He was the one who led Israel into a new way, a new path. But right after Elijah and the prophets of Baal had this kind of showdown in 1 Kings, you can read this, on Mount Carmel, literally God comes down, he, he, he destroys their altars, he, he knocks out his enemies, and then Elijah does something maybe that you wouldn't do. He retreats. He gets away. Some of it's out of fear. Some of it's out of a rhythm, I think, of solitude. He gets away, and he, and he needs to hear from God. And God doesn't speak in a hurricane or a big firestorm or the wind, but he speaks in a whisper to Elijah. Why? Because Elijah was close enough to God in solitude to hear a whisper. We see this in Elijah. Even you skip ahead to the New Testament, right? This terrorist turned church planner named Paul actually has a rhythm of solitude built in before he ever writes a letter or plants a church, right? You can read this, that literally Paul gets away and spends three and a half years in Arabia in this desert wilderness place to study and search the scriptures and be with God. Paul has this rhythm. And then the obvious one that everyone's expecting, right, is Jesus. Jesus in Mark 1 says that he often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. Jesus had a rhythm of solitude with his father. He had a need to be alone and to be in God's presence. I love what French mystic writer Louise Boyer says about this. He writes that solitude is a terrible trial for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. It opens out to us the unknown abyss that we all carry within and discloses the fact that these abysses are haunted. What Boyer is saying is that there's something that happens in solitude you can't have happen anywhere else. It breaks open the facade. It breaks open our need to perform and to look good and to put on a show for our families, our bosses, our church, whatever it is, and it gets down to the core of who we really are. Our life in private is the only life that matters. And this has been really interesting. Like, I, I've just noticed this culturally. Like, obviously, I'm not a political commentator in, in any sense, but I've noticed, like, I've had people say things like this to me. Well, I have a really good boss. Now, sure, he cheated on his wife. He yells at his kids. He, he, he did, practices fraud, basically, on his taxes, but he is a really good boss. Like, we've separated. Have you noticed this? In your, the private life from the public life, as long as they're doing a good job. Or maybe that this person is a really good parent. Yeah, I know they've had like four marriages in a row and they've cheated on every spouse, but they seem to be a really good kid to their dad or really good dad to their kids. That would be weird. I'm not sure even how that works biologically. But And we've separated like the public from private. We, we are, we've become okay with that. Or maybe a few years ago, you caught yourself maybe like I did saying things like, well, he, at least so-and-so is a good leader. At least so-and-so is a good president. 
I don't care if they're public, their personal private life is, is a mess and their, their integrity is questionable, as long as they can lead well. And, and psychologists would describe this, especially in leadership, as a lack of congruence, where there's a, a big gap between a private life and a public life. Jesus would address those kind of leaders in, in the New Testament, and he would call them Pharisees. Their interior life was hollow, even though their exterior life looked like it was doing well, that they were successful and productive in the kingdom of God. And here's why I love this discipline. Here's why it's become a real gift to me, even though it's a struggle, is that privacy and solitude, they breed honesty before God. They, they get down to the core of who you really are. Like solitude is not reserved for like a season of life where you just have a bunch of free time. You know, like, well, when the kids are out, I'll have more time. Or once I finally retire, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Or once I get out of college or once I graduate, then I'll have time for all of that. Once my kids are older and they can walk and feed themselves, like once we get into that state, that is not solitude. Solitude is for who you are right now. It's a gift to all of us, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey. Now, for us, this life stage is really unique, okay? So some of you have been around Center, you know we have a 13-month-old-ish uh, named Lennon, and she's amazing. She's equally psychotic as she is beautiful. Uh, my wife, Lindsay, is the beautiful. I tend to be the psychotic, so it makes total sense how those two are, like, at work at the same, same kid. But it's our first one, and so I've learned a lot of things. And a couple Fridays ago, I noticed something. So typically Fridays is, is Daddy and Lennon Day. Like we're alone pretty much the whole day, just us. Lindsay's at work. We get to do whatever we want. It's super fun. But I noticed something. I caught myself on the couch, and Lennon, when she's in a really good mood, will just kind of play quietly in the corner. If you have kids, you know, like, what a gift from the Lord that is. Like, just, yes, you're just self-contained. This is an incredible moment. So she's over there. She's playing with some toys. She's flipping through books, pretending like she can read. Like she's doing all the cute things. And I notice she gets up from the corner and starts to walk away, which is not unusual. Like she's walked for a few months now and likes to just explore the house. But I've noticed that when she's quiet for too long, it's pure evil. It, that's what's happening. It, nothing is good when, when she is totally quiet. So I kind of, I get up from, I'm walk, looking at my phone or something. I get up, I'm like, oh shoot, I don't know where Lennon is. So I walk into our room. She's not there. I walk down the hall. I'm, I don't hear her. And then I'm like, I hear her, and she's in kind of our main bathroom, which the bathroom in general is safe for kids. Like, there's not much she can really do wrong, but I notice that she has slowly kind of like a, a, I don't know, like a, a pinball machine or like a casino wheel thing. She's just spinning the toilet paper as fast as she can, like down to her. It's just this kind of huge pile, a mountain of fresh toilet paper that could have been used for other things, like just in the middle of the floor. And then she kind of turns with like this half smile and she just has toilet paper in like her teeth, on her nose. It's like on her cheek. It's just wet and nasty. And none of this toilet paper is usable now for its intended purpose, but she loved it. And one thing I figured out super quick is that when Lennon is in the bathroom alone, she is not praying in secret. <laughs> like that is what Jesus talked about. She's not doing that. She is doing the opposite, Satan's work, uh, when she's in there, like just destroying what is supposed to be there. But it's funny because she had that kind of grin when she turns around like, you just found me, but you didn't know where I was. Like, it was kind of this moment where she thought she was doing it secretly, but I'm her dad. I knew that she was up to no good. I, I saw what she was doing in secret. 
Now, some of you can go to lunch early. You already got where I'm going. Your heavenly father loves you and wants what's best for you, but he sees you in secret like no one else can. And for some of us, that's haunting and horrifying. It's like, oh, shoot, I've been found out, kind of like Lennon with the toilet paper. But that doesn't have to be horrifying. That can be incredibly liberating, freeing even, to know that the God who loves you and created you wants to be with you, not just in public moments, not just when you serve on a team or you sing loud in a church service, but every single moment of every single day. Solitude is the way we set up that time with him. I love what worship pastor Bob Coffin uh, writes about this. He says, if I gauge my maturity only by what I do when others can see me, I may be terribly deceived about my true state before God. Let me say that one more time. If I gauge my maturity, but my, my growth in Jesus, only by what I do when others can see me, I may be terribly deceived about my true state before God. This is why Jesus was obsessed with writing and talking and teaching about what we do in secret. Like this wasn't just a, the father said, you got to talk about secret, doing things in secret sometime. No, this was like a rhythm Jesus had. He believed that the most beautiful, vibrant, life-giving, holy version of us can be in private, not just in public. It's this beautiful mix of our personal life and our public life coming together. I find it really interesting too that we have about three, three and a half years of documented stuff about Jesus, his public ministry. But Jesus died when he was around 33 years old, which gives another 30 years. What was Jesus doing in those 30 years? Like, couldn't he have been much more productive for the kingdom of God? I mean, come on. Like, if I'm his boss, it'd be like, you, you could have done more miracles, healed more people. But we don't know if Jesus did any of that. What we do know is that Jesus was spending time listening and fine-tuning his life to the Father's voice. When the Father spoke, Jesus knew his will. Jesus had a rhythm of solitude. This is his life, and he's preaching this to a Jewish culture that was just obsessed with status and accomplishment and achievement, who believed that the wealthier you are, the more God liked you, the more he loved you, and his favor was on your life. But if you've ever been poor, you know that maybe is not necessarily the truth. You know, like God can come to you in moments where you don't have all the physical things quite figured out yet. But for Jewish people, that was the belief. And so for them, as Jesus talks about giving and fasting and praying in secret, to be like, what? Why are you talking about that? We're supposed to do things publicly. We're supposed to pray in the synagogue where all my friends can see me. I'm supposed to give and announce it with a trumpet to make sure, hey, I'm a generous person. Everybody look at me. But Jesus says to do those things in secret. Why? Because your private life is the only life that truly matters. Like that's a life that Jesus is interested in changing. And so much like the Jews, I just kind of got curious. Maybe you're curious. Why don't we practice solitude? If it is this gift from the Lord, if it is like a place where God transforms us from the inside out, why wouldn't we do this? Like it seems like a gimme, but I think there's a couple reasons. The first reason I believe is that we are distracted. We live distracted. Some of you have already checked your phone multiple times in this message just because of pure distraction. It's not even intentional, maybe, it just happens, right? The average American picks up their phone 96 times a day. 
Like, do you think that there's other voices, other messages, other teachings flooding your inbox every day? Yes. We live in a distracted age, which crowds out the room for solitude for many of us. I also believe that, that a lot of us live with this assumption, this burden on us to be productive and successful. Like we believe that to be a good Christian is to be a productive person, to make the sale, to build the house, to, to raise the perfect kid, to be viewed by neighbors, friends, coworkers, f- people in your small group, whoever it is, as successful and productive. We want to look like desperately that we have it all together. And we want people to think that. And that's a burden we carry. That's a reason we crowd out solitude because solitude doesn't feel productive or successful. It's like, what are you talking about? Get away with God, be quiet, sit in my room alone. All these things Jesus said, that doesn't make any practical sense. Why would I do that when I could mow the lawn or I could invest or I could spend time at work? But I don't think those two reasons are the real reason. I, I think they play into it, but I don't think they're the deepest reason. I think the deepest reason we don't practice solitude is that we are afraid. We are afraid that if we get close to God, we might find out he doesn't actually like us. That if we actually prayed like the psalmist prays in Psalm 139, like search me, know me, discern if there's any evil, broken, wicked thing in me, that if God got close to us and really knew us, he wouldn't like us. He would be disappointed. He'd be a sad dad. But can I give you some hope, some divine encouragement? The cross says otherwise. The cross says you, who you really are, the things really going on in your life, the sin you are easily entangled by, all of that. God was worth, he sent Jesus to sacrifice himself to hang on a cross so that you could know his love personally, intimately, fully, just like you really are. Not a spiritually elite version of you not a nicer version of you, not a more figured out version of you, but who you really are today in this moment. Solitude, friends, closes the gap. It actually helps us overcome and, and, and get over that fear. The cross says otherwise. And that's why Jesus says your private life is the only life that matters. You can step over that fear by believing just the, the pure good news of, of Jesus. You know, I think about it this way, December 1972. Some of you are around, some of you are not even a thought. Wherever you are, uh, December 1972, Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was scheduled to, to fly a big group of people, probably really excited, from JFK in New York City to Miami. Anyone else feeling a Center Church Miami campus coming on? You know, like, that. I hear that story, I'm like, I get it 100%. Like, my in-laws live in western New York, super tropical for December. Uh, so Miami would be really nice. But there's this big group of people. You can picture them like kind of mid-flight, sipping their drinks, getting ready to land in Miami and have this incredible uh, Christmas vacation with their families. They're about 20 to 30 miles outside of Miami Airport. And, and a pilot notices there's kind of this red blinking light on the dashboard where the landing gear should be. And they've already announced, like, you've begun our initial descent into Miami Airport. Like, get ready to party, basically. And they see this light flashing, and he kind of bumps the co-pilot. He's like, hey, do you see this? He's like, yeah, that's, that seems weird. But, but this Eastern Airlines Flight 401 was a fairly new plane they were flying. 
So they figure this is an electrical problem or this is kind of a light bulb that's just not screwed in right or something's not happening. And they knew that in this particular plane, if they needed to, they could manually deploy the landing gear. So they weren't worried about it. They just see this kind of flickering and trying to figure out. And this is kind of old school, right? This is early 70s. So they, they call in the other flight attendants like, hey, could you help us figure out this light thing? Like they're all crowded in the cockpit together trying to figure this out. What they don't know is that this plane going as fast as it is, preparing for descent, is rapidly descending while their heads are down looking at this landing gear dashboard, trying to figure out the blinking light. And it's going, they're trying to figure out, discern back and forth. What is it? How do we fix this? And about 18 miles outside of Miami airport, this plane descends rapidly and crashes head on into the Florida swamp. And 101 people lose their lives in this crash. It was one of the most devastating uh, airline kind of accidents that happened within that decade. It's incredibly sad. And what I find really interesting is just like that story, you and I can go to church, serve on a team, we can give money, we can show up happy and raise our voices at every worship song, we can have good kids open the door for old people, (laughs) but at the, at the end of the day, some of us are just missing the point. We're focused on the blinking light, and we've missed the point of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We've missed the most important discipline for a Christian. Like we miss, if we neglect, if we do all those things, but we neglect intimacy with God in solitude, friends, we are missing the point. God wants to be with you in solitude. God actually likes solitude more than you do. He's created you, wired us for a relationship with him that, that goes deep. And I remember this hit me just recently. This is like mid-March. I'm in a worship service like this. Some of our churches were gathered together. The speaker gets up there, and he's talking about something. And, and I just felt kind of in the anonymity of that crowd, God speak to my soul in this moment of solitude. And he put his finger on an area of my life that was unsurrendered that wasn't healed yet, that wasn't transformed, that I was just trying to do it on my own, I was trying to figure it out, I just had convinced myself, rationalized this area and say, it's not that bad, it's not that big of a deal, God, we'll, we'll deal with it later when I've got more time. And God just kind of put his finger on that and said, I wanna heal that now. I wanna break you free from that thinking now. And God did that. In that moment of solitude, set me free from something I had wrestled with But one of the verses that came to mind immediately kind of in that moment was this kind of haunting chapter in 2 Kings 17. In 2 Kings, it's talking about the Israelites, and it says, In that day, the Israelites did things secretly against the Lord. And some of us know what that means. Some of us understand that. Because God is wired for us in our secret place to be the most authentic, real, holy, transformed version of us and for our public life to flow from a beautiful, transformed, redeemed, private one. And so you may be walking away like, oh shoot, I just gotta go practice some more alone time. (laughs) Maybe that's really a gift to you. I'm introverted, that sounds amazing. Maybe you're extroverted, you're like, please don't tell me that's that's what I should be doing. (laughs) Like just being alone more. And I don't wanna encourage you to just practice alone time because that may not be like a realistic goal for you in this season of life. It just may not be. Like my house is never quiet. So 
the house for me is not, I don't spend from three to 5 a.m. in prayer on my knees in my basement. Like that's not my season right now. But I do wanna encourage you to practice solitude. I want to encourage you and challenge you that this summer you take this discipline, this practice seriously. And for you, like for me, I've kind of jokingly said, like my car is slowly becoming this mobile monastery. (laughs) This time where it's like, it's quiet. There's no kids. I know I've got some space. I don't have to turn the radio or a podcast on. I can just be with God and all the other psychos on 131, right? Like, so for me, that's kind of what my season is. Like, that's a place sometimes I'll, I'll get to a parking lot a little bit earlier. I'll get to a meeting a little bit earlier and just sit with God. What's heavy, God? What, what, do I, what am I concerned about? What scripture do you want to lead me to? What song is kind of bouncing around in my head that I've just been reflecting on? That, that, for me, is how solitude looks in this season. For some of us, it needs to look like a calendar event. You need to put it on Google Calendar or your, or your Apple Calendar. You need to get it on, on your schedule so that you will honor it and you will meet with God. You need to set up a meeting or a reoccurring event with the Lord. For some of us, it's just simple to shut the door. We need to shut the door on priorities and distractions that want to crowd in that time. Maybe it's silencing your phone a little bit longer. Maybe it's setting a period of time where you don't have a device on or TV on in your house, or you need to do something like that to just set aside some space for the Lord. But his invitation is not just to be alone, not just to be silent, but it's to be with him. And honestly, I remember when this first hit me, I was 18 years old. And in a lot of ways, I was running away from the Lord. I was in Auckland, New Zealand, thousands of miles from my family, thousands of miles from from what was familiar and comfortable. I was trying to find myself. And I was at a concert, a band I'd seen before, songs I knew. But maybe like you, at the time, there was this thing called a compact disc. I would put it in my car and I would play music out of it. I lost some of you, but put the CD in. And almost like Spotify or Apple Music now, like I would just... Two, two minutes in or something, I just skipped to the next song because I'm an impatient human being. So I was, go to the next one, jump to the next track. And I missed, there was this part in a song uh, that they were playing. It was the last song of this concert. And I'd heard like a half of it, but I'd never heard the whole thing. And they finished this concert by kind of closing out with this bridge. And it hit me. It hit me. God met me in that moment. And the line goes, what are you doing when no one's watching, what are you doing? Children, get your hearts right. God is coming for a pure bride. Children, get your hearts right. Man, that hit me because I just had recognized I was living with significant gaps between what I was experiencing in my private life versus what God was doing in me in my public one. And I just said, I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live with that lack of congruence. I don't want to be a leader that's like that. I don't want to be a future dad or spouse that lives like that. I want to have a transparent life where people can see right through from my private world into my public one and see no difference. This is Jesus' invitation to you, to me, in solitude. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to pray, and then Peter's going to lead us in a bit of that song, and you can just stay seated through this time. And we're going to carve out 30 seconds, maybe 60 seconds, to have the room be totally quiet, which is rare for many of us, but but needed for all of us. And so I want to give you a moment to do that. And maybe in that space, there's something you do need to confess. 
there's an area that is unhealed, unchanged, and you just need to open that up to the Holy Spirit. Maybe for you, it's just a reminder of a rhythm that you do have. And it's like, oh man, this is just water to my soul. Just being quiet and in God's presence is, is a beautiful thing. Maybe for you, it's a conversation you need to have. God stirs up, he gives you the courage. Maybe it's a decision you need to make. He, he deposits some wisdom into your life. Whatever it is, I wanna encourage you to take this space no matter how unfamiliar it may feel. So would you pray with me as we do that? Father, thank you that you invite us not just to a practice, not just to a rhythm, not just to a new habit to adopt, but you invite us in solitude to yourself, to meet and spend time and get to know you, Jesus, the one who can ultimately heal and transform and set free, who breaks down kind of the false security that idols and money and status can bring. And so, Lord, we seek you. We wanna be pure, holy, transformed people, but we know that that doesn't happen in our own power and in our own strength. And so we come to you, Lord, asking that you would do that work as we get quiet before you. We love you and pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Peter's gonna play. Let's take this moment just to be quiet before him.